Hi, welcome to 9 to Thrive, a podcast about creating a life that doesn't suck. I'm your host, Janet McKenna-Lowry. Every week, my guest and I chat about work, community, and creativity. And this week, I have business professor John Dion, who used to work in theater, anthropology, Bose Sound Systems, and Lego, about the importance of service and empathy. Enjoy. Hi, and welcome. Today, I am talking to John Dion, who's the assistant professor of marketing and the director of the MBA programs at the College of St. Rose. Thanks for joining me today, John. That's great to be here. Yeah. So it's a pretty informal chat, and we cover those the three topics of work and community and creativity. And you can pick whichever one you want to start with and uh, tell me what you do. Sure. Uh, as you said, I'm associate professor of marketing at the College of St. Rose. Most of what I do is teaching, or we're teaching-focused university more than, than research-focused. But actually, it kind of blends together when you talk about community, because the College of St. Rose was founded by the Sisters of St. Joseph, and their uh, motto is, serve the dear neighbor. Oh. But part of the college's philosophy is to be very integrated with the community. So a lot of work that I do through St. Rose is very community-oriented. So a simple thing that we do, you know, a lot of uh, universities begin the academic year with a, you know, an academic convocation. All the faculty wear their robes and we march around and make speeches and all that kind of stuff. At St. Rose, we actually begin our academic year with a day of service. Oh. A thousand students and, and faculty and staff volunteer in 60 different organizations throughout the capital region uh, in, in New York for the day. That's how we begin our year, and I'm one of the people who is on the organizing committee for that. That's lovely. I usually spend the day picking onions with the lacrosse team. <laughs> well, so, yeah, talk more about that, especially because MBAs are not necessarily strongly associated with service. No, but that really is part of what the, what the college is about. Yeah. You know, the way I look at the college is that we are we're a liberal arts college with some professional programs. So our business majors, and I teach both undergraduates as well as the the, the graduate students, about 50% of their coursework is in business. The other 50% is in the liberal arts. So all students, if you're you're a business major, you absolutely will take uh, philosophy and history and writing and computer science and lab sciences and social sciences and so on. And then in, in, in business, regardless of what your major is in business, my students are marketing majors. But they're going to get a foundation in economics and accounting and finance and management and uh, operations and so on. Okay. How long is – so you, you're director of the MBA, too. How long is that program? It, it depends on you, actually. It's a 36-credit program if you uh, have all the prerequisites waived, if you were a mm. business major. So it's 12 courses. You could finish it in one calendar year if you went four classes per semester, fall, spring, and, and summer. But a lot of our students are working professionals. Uh-huh. They may take you know, one or two or, or three classes a semester and just take a little bit longer to do it. As long as they get it done within six years, it's fine. And do they participate in this community aspect of the college too? Is that uh, Absolutely. So we, so we have the Reach Out St. Rose, but also in January, I go with a group of students to Washington, D.C., and in the, uh, in the mornings, we prepare and serve meals in different soup kitchens. Mm-hmm. In the afternoons, we get seminars on poverty and homelessness in the U.S. And on the last day, actually, we have appointments set up with Senator Schumer's office, Senator Gillibrand's office, and with Congressman Tonko himself. And our students, both undergraduate students and graduate students, present to their elected officials' offices their perspective on different issues. Interesting. Actually, this is kind of cool because we were actually literally in the Capitol building talking to Senator Schumer's aide on immigration 
when President Trump was also in the Capitol building presenting his views on immigration. Somewhat different views. Yeah. <laughs> I think they're wildly different views. Yeah. That, and then we have, I don't do the spring break trips. We have a trip that goes to New Orleans and a trip to San Francisco, also doing service work. But the day after graduation, I'm taking a group of students uh, with uh, one of the, the sisters on campus, and we're spending two weeks in Guatemala. Oh wow! Yeah. So it's yeah. so it's still a, it's still a Catholic college. It still has a nun's presence. Is that? It is. We have been co-ed since around 1970 or so, and actually uh, legally we are an independent college. Oh okay. That is, we're an independent mm-hmm. college sponsored by the Sisters of Saint Joseph. Interesting. Yeah, because sometimes it still has the name, but they don't have the presence. So, do any of the students bring that sense of service into their MBA degrees because they can get so corporate? Yeah, I hope so. I mean, I think one of the things that we try to emphasize in our program is the importance of considering ethics in making mm-hmm. business decisions. Yeah. And, I, and I hope, and again, I, I work just as much with the, with the undergraduates as the graduates. And I think you can have more influence with the undergraduates that even if you're not going to spend your life working in a nonprofit, you should always consider yourself a member of the community and try to give back to the community and be an active part of your community. Yeah. Uh, and that's programs helps with that. Yeah, that's interesting because, you know, a lot of business programs were, I, in my personal opinion, unduly influenced by University of Chicago economics from uh, the 50s. So Friedman and that crew to only consider shareholders and not stakeholders. Yeah. And a lot of times the stakeholder only gets considered in nonprofits, but I think there's a little bit of a sea change. I keep hearing at least more about ethics programs and my program did have a strong ethics component, but I also wanted to hear more like it almost was counteracted in other classes where they'd be like, sure there's other stakeholders, but they don't matter. Your shareholders <laughs> <laughs> you know, well, I think it's okay though, I think, because part of what you're doing when you're getting education is you're getting lots of different perspectives. So you may get the perspective but you get the perspective of one discipline in in your economics course and a different in your in your accounting course, and then it's up to you as a student yeah. to sort of synthesize all these different perspectives and and accept and reject different perspectives. True. But I, I do I do hope at the end of the day that we are educating ethical professionals. What I've seen when I when I teach the first semester of freshmen, they all come in exactly that perspective of it's all about making money, it's all about profit. Right. And by the time they leave here, they're much more there's a balance between between profit and community. Right. And and I think what I stress in my classes is if you're gonna be in order to be successful not only in the short term, but also in the long term, you do have to consider all stakeholders. Yeah. Don't kill your host is kind of the baseline. Yes. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Absolutely. <laughs> so how did you get into studying business? I mean, you told me at one point your undergraduate was anthropology. So how did you end up oh, by act- doing what you do? Honestly, I was, uh, when, after I graduated, I had no idea what I was going to do. It never occurred to me that I was going to graduate with a degree in anthropology and, and not have a job immediately waiting for me, or that I <laughs> had to get a job. My original plan actually was I was going to teach English in China. Ah, that was yeah. the time when the Tiananmen Square incident happened, and I couldn't get a visa to China. So I had some friends who were starting the Children's Theater of Massachusetts, and I was going to do a little bit of stage management work, but also do some marketing and public relations for them. But I had no idea how to do that. So I got a 10-week internship at the Lego Toy Company in their public relations department, and I just never left. Oh, wow. Yeah, as, as an uh, unpaid intern, I stayed for 10 years. <laughs> I hope you got paid eventually. <laughs> You're six or seven. I threw a little fun <laughs> How was that? Is it as fun as it feels like it should be, or is it more it corporate was, and the fun no, somewhere else? No, no. Lego was... 
I was very fortunate that both corporations I worked for had a very strong uh, philosophical point of view. People at Lego were absolutely passionate about what they were doing and what the, we were doing was benefiting children. And, and it was very much a creative uh, atmosphere. Like every single boardroom or conference room table had a, a glass bowl with Lego pieces in it. So you'd, oh. you'd actually like people like sort of mindlessly building stuff as they were <laughs> in, a, in a meeting. Uh, no, it was a great place to be. And they were really allowed for creativity. Like I came up with an idea. This is at me at like 24 years old. I said, I want to do create a museum exhibit that uses Lego to help children explore different principles and structures and machines and robotics. And uh -huh. I put the proposal, and I had to give the proposal to my manager, my director, the VP of marketing, the president of the U.S. subsidiary. And at the end of the, pre the presentation, the president looked at me and said, I see one problem with your proposal. I thought, well, one's not bad, but what is one problem? <laughs> and he said, you haven't allocated enough money for it, so we actually doubled the budget. Let me, yeah, and, and I went for it. Actually, actually, in my office right now, I'm actually looking at a framed poster from the exhibit. Oh, uh, wow. So it was very much the, uh, a, a creative environment. Wow. Well, and a supportively creative environment. Absolutely, yeah. And then I requested a transfer to the world headquarters in Denmark, and I worked there for a couple of years. Oh, wow. So do you know Danish? Yeah, I do. I, also, because my wife is Danish. Ah, so, yeah. And there I worked in a lot of different areas, but the, the main thing I did was in product development. I was oh. on the core team that developed the Lego Mindstorms uh, robotics. Oh, oh. Uh, okay. Well, thank you for that. Yeah, good. Uh, <laughs> product. And that was probably, that was just an amazing experience also. And again, we actually began that product development with what kind of experience do we want to create for kids? It's actually where we started. And then we wrote a white paper on this is what we want kids to, to experience. And then we looked at all the different pockets of product development in the Lego company. And it was the robotics that we said that's the right tool to use or to create the experience that we wanted to create. Mm. So, Do they always do that kind of reverse engineering? Uh, I don't you know, don't know what it's like in other areas, but that was the group uh, that I worked with. Uh, how so you did. did it. But it was, yeah. And I think also the Danish perspective, I think, has also influenced my worldview being much more uh, collectivist, I think, in, in, in ah. the world, rather than more, the more traditional American looking out for yourself. I, yeah, in, individualist, yeah. Absolutely. Yeah, the, the only Danish virtue that I know of recently has been Hygge. Hygge, yeah. <laughs> Hygge, the, com the comfort one. Yeah. But yeah, there is a more collectivist. Yeah. What was the most challenging thing about working? I mean, did you know Danish before you went? I did not, no. <laughs> uh, which was not the challenging part, honestly, because uh, really most people in Denmark speak uh, speak English and they speak English very well. Mm. I think that it was challenging. Right? I think it was the first time in my life that I really understood what it was like to be an American mm. and understanding oh. or learning that there were fundamental differences between Americans and other people. Interesting. And I think also, I think I think we grew up with the myth that everyone wants to immigrate uh, or emigrate to the United States, right? And people who really have no interest whatsoever <laughs> not in the United States, uh, let alone settling here. <laughs> uh, yeah, it's true. A lot of our myths are well, I guess because so many people did, you start right. to assume so many people want to. <laughs> right. Although yeah. it was different when you got when you got like tons of stolen free land. I mean, this, this is true. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> Everything's different when you get somebody else's <laughs> land for free. <laughs> so 
what was the most, what did you feel is the most, I mean, obviously your personal life, but what else did, what, what was the most rewarding thing about going to Denmark and just sort of making that move? Yeah, I think, I think you find strength in yourself mm. that you, that you are able to, you have to have a certain amount of resilience and persistence, I think, to, to live and be successful in another country, in another culture. Mm. I know this is uh, qu- quite answering your question, but the other thing I think was really interesting for me as an um, American is in the United States, I was white mm. and had certain privileges along with that. In Denmark, most people assume that I was Turkish because I have dark hair and dark eyes and I speak Danish with an accent. Oh, wow. And in Denmark, the Turks are treated the way many Latino and, and black people are treated in the U.S. So to be on the receiving end of discrimination was really interesting for me. Wow. Um, How do you do like, it? Do you correct them or do you just sort of endure it? Um, sometimes. Well, yeah, it depends on the situation. Funny, my wife didn't believe me at first. And we went to a bakery. And I remember I ordered something in Danish. And the woman looked and said, I can't understand a word you're saying. Mm. I, I went in the next time and I wore a baseball hat. So I'm very American. And I said in Danish, I'm, I'm American. I hope you can understand my Danish. And she said, of course I can. Your Danish is perfect. Mm-hmm. <laughs> what you would, I would do sometimes is I would immediately switch to English and I would use the biggest words I could think of, even if they didn't really fit in the sentence. <laughs> I would just say like really big words and complicated sentence structure. <laughs> wow. Yeah. yeah. That is so interesting. Sort of getting, getting you're almost visiting a kind of, I don't know, a kind of racism as a visitor. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Wow. That wow, that's wild. And it's, I think it's helpful for me here, too, because we're a very, very diverse school at St. Rose. Since I've been here, about 50% of our first-year students are students of color. Okay. So it, it, I think it's helpful for, for me as their instructor to have at least a, t- a tiny window into what their world might be like. Is there an so, yeah? Is there an entrepreneurial side to the degree that's there? there you, it's one of the concentrations that's available. Mm. You could do small business management or entrepreneurship, mm. and that's a pretty popular one. A lot of our, our students actually, after they graduate, they want to create their own business. Yeah, yeah. Just curious because that that seems to be a a helpful direction for a lot of at risk students. I actually think it should be in high schools. I actually think it's a lot more useful than a lot of stuff I learned in high school. <laughs> Well, <laughs> would be to how how to actually create a business and run a business and you know keep it sustainable. So I was kind of wondering whether there was that entrepreneurial side to it. Yeah, and I think one of these we're actually looking at doing here is having our business association actually create a business on campus. Oh, and and actually run that business. Yeah, yeah, that uh, that would be nice because a lot of incubators, God love them, are all about that the sort of gamification so you get your idea even if it's a terrible idea so that you can get funding so that you can sell that idea even though it was a terrible idea but it's not about running a business no we, we want to actually have a business that they manage for the long haul yeah that'd be nice that's what i'm saying it'd be nice to have an actual you know an actual going concern <laughs> absolutely there you go yeah, yeah. <laughs> uh, why did you leave why teaching why did you move into teaching oh well, you were at bose for a while i was at bose for 14 years yeah oh yeah no i I always wanted to do was to teach. I mean, that was the original plan was right to teach English in, in, in China. Right. My assumption was that I was going to end up as a, a teacher at some point. 
and I just like again, the whole corporate career was sort of a, I was sort of sidetracked for 25 years, mm. and, and and now kind of kind of bringing it together. So I probably. The, I, I, I never had any intention of uh, being a, a professor in, in business, and if I had gone right into a PhD program, I would have gone into it in anthropology, which is actually what my, my faculty advisor wanted me to do as an undergraduate. Uh-huh. But I think the salaries are higher for business professors yeah. than they are for anthropology um, professors. I'm going to guess. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> Anytime you're closer to the money, like philosophically, it tends to go up. <laughs> Yeah. So, so what did you do at Bose? Like, so you came back from Denmark, and then yep, I at Lego for a little bit. But after the the Lego Mindstorms launched, I honestly thought there's nothing more that I can really do to top that year. Mm. So I thought it was time to work with a different a different brand and different target audiences. So at Bose, I actually was hired first in their um, corporate communications department. Doctor Bose did not believe in using any external agencies, ah. so we actually created an ad agency inside Bose Corporation, whose only clients were the different divisions at Bose. It's about 100 people, actually. Whoa. Uh, and we treated them like they were clients, and we actually charged them money. Wow. And their budget got transferred over to our budget, and our budget, we were supposed to be revenue neutral at the end of the year. That is an amazing setup. It was really it was interesting, yeah. And so my client was Bose's automotive systems division. Uh, Bose has a pretty big business selling branded sound systems to different car manufacturers, which are built right into the car in the factory and then sold to consumers as an upgrade. Okay. And I, so that was my, my client. And then my client, uh, that division created a job for me. And then I, so I moved over to the automotive division. And I was the marketing person working on initially the uh, Ferrari, Maserati, and Porsche accounts. Oh, snazzy. Which was really, you know, and it's funny because I, I tell the students, honestly, it's even better than it sounds because <laughs> Maserati and, and Porsche said, if you're going to work with our brands, you have to internalize our brand values. Oh. We absolutely insist that you drive our car. Oh, oh so since you insist. Was, I was required to drive Porsches and Maseratis on, on racetracks and auto courses and on the street. Wow. And with the Porsche Cayenne, I, I had to go off-roading. Wow. Wow. <laughs> How kind of them. I mean, it, really, it was a lot of fun. It was great. And then I moved over and worked on the Nissan and Mazda accounts. Mm. Oh, yeah. Not as fun-sounding, but much bigger volume business. <laughs> and then, as I said, you know, partway through that, I, I moved over uh, or made the decision to switch over to academia. Uh-huh. So you kind of overlapped. You started on your PhD while you were still working in corporate, right? Yeah, mm -hmm. yeah. Uh, and because and, I, and one of the reasons why I chose a European program is there was more flexibility. Okay, uh, there was a residence requirement. It was more possible to to do it while while working and and taking care of my family. And what was the name of that program? Something to do with two different universities, right? Yeah. So I, I uh, the, my degree was jointly awarded by the Grenoble School of Management. Uh, in France mm -hmm. uh, and Newcastle University in England. So each one had their own separate PhD programs, but for this one effort, for this one initiative, they actually worked together and jointly awarded the program. Basically, you had to meet the individual requirements of both institutions, meet the standards of both institutions before you got the, the degree from them both. Uh -huh. What I liked about it is you get the difference in perspective. The French I think we're much more about creativity and innovation oh. in, in your research, whereas the British were much more focused on the structure of your argument, how you frame the argument. 
And so I think I really benefited from getting both perspectives. That's really interesting. How did you how did you find that program? I mean, people ask me all the time about going to the school in Europe, and yeah, yeah. No, I just did. I did a search honestly on on the schools. I made sure that uh, it had the right accreditation, so that it would allow me to work in academia in the United States. Ah, uh, European business standards. It's accredited body called Equus. Is the primary one in the U.S. It's AACSB, and Grenoble actually had accreditation from both plus a third. So I knew that that degree would allow me to get a good post in the U.S., a good appointment in the U.S. Mm. I just looked at which ones were the highest ranked that met the criteria, so I knew they were sort of legit. Mm. And how long did that take you since you were working full-time and had a young family? Uh, seven years. Seven six, years. Six years. Okay. Yeah. Took a while. Yeah. It's a while, but it's not a crazy while. No, no, it wasn't bad. No, yeah. no, it was, it was fun. It was, a, it was an interesting experience. And did you have to uh, do any of your classes in French? No, everything was in English. Everything was yeah. in English. Which of business? So yeah, uh, yeah, everything was in English. Oh, that's very cool. That's very cool. Did you wish you went and did a residency there, or? Yeah, again, I, I don't. I don't know. You know, it's funny because I think if I had gone. I don't think I could have done it at that point in my career. Sure. If I had gone right from undergraduate degree to a PhD program, there would have been great benefit to that. I would have had a longer career in academia, and I probably would have had more research opportunities, which would have been good. But the way that I did it, I can bring into the classroom now both the, the theoretical perspective from having a research doctorate as well as the practical experience you know, the, the, that I've had or insights from the practical experience. Mm. And I think students here really, they actually like the practical, I think it's in many ways more than the theoretical. Mm. Yeah. So. Yeah. Interesting. Yeah. So I was noticing that both of your main, main corporations that you've worked for are almost arts-based, I want to say. I mean, Lego is arts and play-based and Bose is music-based. Music, yeah. And sound. Yeah, yeah, that's true. And they're both private also. They are both private. Yeah. Yeah. It's a big difference also because neither corporation had to worry about short-term profit. They didn't have to worry about satisfying right. shareholders. Right. And that also changes in you know, what, you're, what you're able to do or the creativity that they will uh, encourage. Yeah. You know, both uh, would spend you know, decades researching something. Mm. You know, they didn't have to worry about turning that into a product immediately. Yeah. And is that one of the things that attracted you to it when you were attracted to those com- companies? Did you look into those things or was it more of like, it's just a nice fit, we're aligned, I'm going to go with it? Yeah, I wish I could say it was more thoughtful than it was. It was <laughs> no, Lego really was sort of an accident, honestly, looking, you know, because someone who was on the board of the Children's Theater happened to be working at Lego uh-huh. and, like, and arranged the internship. And Bose was, I think someone at Lego said, oh, Bose is a has a reputation as a good place to work, you should consider applying there. Yeah, okay. And someone who had been creative director at Lego's, at Bose, sorry, Bose's agency had done some contract work at Bose, so I had an in, I knew, I knew someone yeah. there. Yeah, yeah. Nice. So that that's kind of a segue for me. Let's talk a little bit about creativity. So we've kind of, we've kind of meandered through community and through work. And then, so what do you do to sort of nurture your own creativity? Hmm. Um, it's a broad definition. No, I know. I said, actually, the funny thing is, I think the, the uh, gardening is probably one mm-hmm. thing that I do because you're, it, it frees your mind. You begin thinking in a different direction. And similarly, I think even something going to the gym is serves that purpose. Okay. Yep. You just sort of connect from all your work and you're just sort of 
don't know, you're focused, but your mind is not engaged in the, in the same way. Yeah. One of my guests wanted to, oh, she asked me whether we're, we could just redefine it as flow state, which is totally fine. Yeah. <laughs> what puts you in a flow state? Yeah. So I guess that they're both of those things. Yeah. And I, you know, the other part, I think, is that working with young people, I think, mm. does that. You know, um, the funny, I mean, I think, you know, from the, the eyes in, I think I'm still 18. Yeah. You know, only when I look at, actually, when I look at the little picture of me here in the corner of the screen that I realize, my God, you're old. <laughs> uh, but, but being with really people who are 18 to 21 years old every single day, I think, makes you feel young and makes you feel creative. It makes you see that life is full of possibilities. Yeah. Yeah. You know? Yeah. And when here is so optimistic. Does academia leave you with that kind of sense of creativity? Are you able to, I don't know, are you able to innovate where you are? Or is there more of a sense of here's what the rules are, you have to fulfill them, you know, get the kids mastery? As a person, I think for me, absolutely, there's lots of opportunities. Mm. Since I have been here, I have worked on sort of rebuilding the marketing program, Mm -hmm. which for me felt creative. when When I was first here, the marketing program was much more marketing communications, mm. right? Advert, focusing on advertising and, and Marcom, and I've tried to make it more comprehensive, stretch, uh, stressing more the quantitative dimensions mm. of marketing. Uh, so that was good. I have introduced, actually worked on introducing a new program. So we're actually within the marketing area. I now have a sales program, mm-hmm. which is not typically found in, in smaller schools. So that's, that was a creative thing to do. Mm. Worked on uh, uh, accelerated courses of study programs. So it's, I guess there are opportunities to, to innovate and be creative, and, and that's a lot of fun. I, but I think there are, I mean, it's a mix. I think it, 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 in any environment, it is what you make of it. Mm. I mean, I look at this place as being really vibrant and creative and community focused, uh, as we mentioned earlier. But I, I mean, I have some coworkers who are very jaded. Mm. You know, and it's weird because we'll have the same students, you know, my class and, and this other person's class, and I'll say, these are the most amazing students in the world. I'm having such a great time working with them. And this person has nothing, the other person has nothing but complaints about them. Mm. Yeah, yeah. So- oh, their skills aren't good, their math skills aren't good, they're, you know, blah, 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 blah. And I just don't, I mean, I think it's just the attitude you bring to it. Yeah, and the outlook. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah that's, I mean, I, I've come to realize that as a sign that you are no longer aligned with what you do you're stuck but you're not aligned yeah i think absolutely yeah and i think the hard thing in academia is people feel like they don't have an option mm. I, I i'm i'm here and i have tenure which right. is kind of a split sword in that perspective because in order to go somewhere where you might be better aligned you have to give up this this huge security right well you work so hard to get my favorite sunk cost fallacy You've put in so much time and so much effort, and you're where you are. You can't possibly walk away, but of course you could. <laughs> Absolutely, and you could walk away to another another university, or you could leave the academy altogether. Yeah. You know, if this is no longer bringing you joy, then then do something else. Yeah. Yeah. Have you ever read Nudge by Cass Sunstein and Richard Thaler? No. It's really good. Thaler got a Nobel Prize for it the year before last. But they talk a little bit about how uh, there's there's a bunch of biases they talk about. And one of them is not necessarily sunk cost, but the bias of what I have now, if I leave it, I'm losing something. Even though if you leave it, a lot of times you gain something 10 times better because you, yeah, yeah. you were no longer satisfied where you were. But it's very right. hard for, you know, clever monkeys like us to 
grasp that. <laughs> yeah. I think someone I said that to her, I said, you seem really unhappy. You, you should consider leaving. I think she thought I was trying to push her out the door. I was like, no, I really just think, I just think you'd be happier somewhere else. And life is too short for you to be this angry every single day. Yeah. And actually, it happened at a place where I used to work. Uh, somebody there told me later that a, a boss who had made certainly my life pretty miserable they brought in a consultant and on, I don't know, the second week she was asking stuff around the table and she looked at him and she said, you hate it. Why are you in here? And he handed in his resignation that afternoon. (laughs) And I thought, well, couldn't this have happened a year earlier? That would have been much more convenient for me. (laughs) This is not well-timed on my timeline. So, yeah. What, so what, what do you hope to do? What are some like accomplishments you want to get to um, complete? And, and I only talked two years out. This doesn't have to be a deathbed confession. It just is. No, no. I think that um, one of the things I think more on my short or mid, mid, midterm horizon is um, I would uh, like to apply for a Fulbright scholarship. Uh, they have a program that's called Senior Scholars Program. Um, and I would like to uh, spend a summer, which is kind of the equivalent of a fall semester, uh, teaching at a university in Guatemala. Oh, um, interesting. Third time, yeah, my third time going to Guatemala uh, in, in May, and there I actually work with a, a school for, for students whose families are in extreme poverty. Ah. They make less than a, a dollar a day, and these students, in many cases, will be the first person in their family to graduate from elementary school or, or complete elementary school. And some of the students go on to university. So for me, it would almost be like seeing a full cycle or, you know, if, if I can work with them, I work with the middle school students. I don't work with the, the elementary school students, but to work with them as middle schoolers and then sort of see them or, you know, as college students. Right. Really, to me, that would be really interesting. For my, um, I think for my family, we could spend a summer there. Mm. I've gone by my, not by myself, but with, with students and I would love to share with my family the experiences that I've uh, I've had. Mm. My daughters say they're sick of going to Denmark every summer. <laughs> they're well, sick of Denmark? I, oh man! <laughs> was awful. Uh, there was a time I remember we were, and they were they were fairly young at this time. I took them to a diner, and my my older daughter looked at me and she said, "Daddy, I am so tired of spending every summer in Scandinavia. I want to go somewhere else." <laughs> Turned around like, who the heck is this? <laughs> 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 like from Rushka Sol. Yeah. <laughs> I don't want a summer in Scandinavia. <laughs> oh, <laughs> man. <laughs> it's like, it's like Eloise or something. I'm so tired of yeah. living in Park Place Plaza. Exactly. <laughs> uh, I thought I could take her. And actually, next year, she's in high school right now. She'll be a junior in high school. Uh, she and I have talked about that she could join me on either the Washington, D.C. trip or the Guatemala trip, maybe Washington, D.C. her junior year, and then Guatemala her senior year in high school, so she gets that same experience that uh, that my students are getting. Oh, that would be kind of nice. Yeah, it would be, be fun, yeah. Yeah, yeah. Oh, lovely. Yeah, well, that's that's lovely. Anything else? Uh, one of the things I do like to give people an opportunity to do is if there are any groups or charities or more information stuff you think that people should know so anything about uh helping out in guatemala or any of those uh kind of or if there's any scholarship things for people sure i mean i, I i've always been involved in in nonprofits or different nonprofit boards mm. uh, 
I was in my, my mid-20s. Here in Albany, a group that I, I, I'm no longer on the board for, but I think is a, does some very powerful work, is the Underground Railroad History Project. Oh, oh see, there's community. Uh, yeah, that's outside. Yeah, um, yeah. yeah it's actually, it, it, was, uh, it was a husband and wife uh, uh, pair, and they were not uh, professional historians, uh, but very good historians, and they discovered that there actually was a station on the Underground Railroad right here in Albany. Uh-huh. The house was in terrible condition. They bought it for a very, very low price, and um, they're, they've been trying to raise the funds to restore it. But in the meanwhile, they do a tremendous amount of programming. They put together a, a history conference every year, uh, and they really talk about not only just the history, it's sort of an entry point to talking about uh, race relations in the United States today, sort of, uh, which, is, which is they do incredible work. They do a lot of programming for, uh, uh, for youth in this area. That's an incredible group. Um, I'm also currently on the board for the Museum of Political Corruption uh, here. What is that? It's corruption. It's, it is a, uh, uh, an institute that actually has uh, is studying or examines political corruption both in the past and in the and the present. And actually, every year we actually give out what's called the Nellie Bly Award oh. for uh, um, investigative journalism. Oh wow! So that's another great group. But I think in general, people should, I mean, I mean, those are just two, two groups that I've, I've worked with, uh, but absolutely find a group that you're passionate about. And actually, just don't, don't just give money, although money is, is good, but get involved in it. Yeah. Uh, actually volunteer there. And I think that's another way you talk about feeding creativity. Yeah. You know, you get to, to explore different sides of yourself or expand in different areas because you're volunteering in a different area than you, is your normal work. I think that's particularly valuable if you are earlier in your career. Mm. I think great way of building your your skill set mm. both your hard skills as well as your soft skills developing leadership skills and communication skills by by serving on a nonprofit board right right yeah that's a really good point that just getting in there well and actually showing up showing up is so much <laughs> it, it really is <laughs> Yeah, you know it's it's not it's not a high bar really in in a way and, that, and I think, you know, like the Reach Out St. Rose, that, that one-day thing, that, that, that's good, you know, or if you want to volunteer for one day in a, in a soup kitchen or whatever. But I think it's, it's when you show, when you make an ongoing commitment to something. Right. And you, right. you work with, uh, with a nonprofit more regularly, uh, that you learn a little bit more about what, that, what their world is like and, and what their, their client's world right. is like. Right. And I think that's also really helpful. I um, I work with a, um, a homeless shelter in, in Worcester, Massachusetts, and I think one of the biggest ahas for me early on in, in, in talking to people who were staying there is the reality is they were in no meaningful way any different than I am. They just had a run of bad luck. Yeah. You know, and, and, that's, and that was the only thing that made my current situation different than their current situation. And unless you get out there and actually talk to people and and and, and experience their humanity you know um things don't get better right right yeah it's definitely that's kind of the third piece to everything is is sort of what you do for money and to make sure you can pay rent and get some food on the table but then what you do for yourself and what you do for others it's kind of there's a lot of overlap but they're kind of the three you if you're missing one you're missing something big (laughs) and you certainly appreciate um more uh, what what you what your uh, the the gifts that you've been given or the luck that you enjoy, 
when you when you see. I mean, it's funny because my like even you know working in Guatemala, my whole definition of wealth has shifted. Oh, interesting. Right. I mean, when when I was younger, wealth meant maybe having a a, house, a certain type of house or a BMW or whatever it is. And now I look, I am really wealthy because I have water that I can drink. Right. Right. You know, and people I work with in, in Guatemala don't. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, I read a book. So I built a house a bunch of years ago and read, I overread because I always over research, but there was a book called the walls around us. And the author said, you know, I, I have a flushing toilet and you know, Louis the 16th, the sun King, he did not. (laughs) (laughs) He may have had everything covered in gold and I don't have that, but I can flush my toilet. (laughs) And in many ways that's worth a lot more. I love that. I love that perspective of it, at least the historical perspective. <laughs> yeah. Well, this has been really delightful. Is there anything else uh, you want to make sure to bring up? <laughs> well, I appreciate you taking the time and chatting with me. Sure. That's been fun. Yeah, it's really good. Thanks, John. Take care. I'd like to say how much I appreciate John being on the podcast today. We covered a breadth of topics and geographical locations from Denmark to Guatemala. There's a couple of things that he said that stuck with me. Any environment is what you make of it. And the difference between you and me and someone who's homeless is a run of bad luck. Unless you go out to talk to people and experience their humanity, things don't get better. Thanks for being with us this week. That's it for this week's 9 to Thrive podcast. Be sure to visit working9tothrive.com, that's with the number 9, to access links, info, and to join the conversation. We're on Twitter, at 9tothrive, and Facebook, at Working9tothrive. Thanks for listening. Thanks for listening.